Hey everyone, it's friend in law, and today I thought I'd talk about constructive manslaughter. So, why is it called constructive manslaughter? Well, the elements alone wouldn't support a manslaughter charge, but if you take them together, you can construct a charge of manslaughter. So, constructively, it becomes a manslaughter. It's the same reason that a constructive dismissal is considered a dismissal in employment law. When the evidence is taken in the round, it amounts to the homicide offence of manslaughter. An alternative name for constructive manslaughter is unlawful and dangerous act manslaughter, often shortened to UDAM, which is a term I prefer and usually use. And what are the requirements of UDAM? Well, there must be an act that's unlawful, the act must be dangerous, it must cause a death or else there's no point in making it a homicide offence. And these requirements are the key requirements for a manslaughter charge. Provided you can show this combination, the prosecution are able to make a charge of manslaughter or construct one. So, regarding the unlawful act, is it civil or criminal or both? Well, originally, the act could have been a civil wrong, as demonstrated by the case of R.V. Fenton in 1830. The defendant had thrown stones down a mine shaft, which caused scaffolding collapse, leading to the death of some miners. The unlawful act they relied upon was a tort of trespass, a civil wrong, but not actually criminal. That survived for 50 years until the case of Franklin, in which the court held a new breach of criminal law could be the basis of UDAM, and a civil breach would be insufficient. In Franklin, the defendant had thrown the bo a box off a pier that struck a diver on the head and killed him. He was actually convicted of manslaughter in the end, although I wasn't able to find out exactly which criminal offence the prosecution were relying on. So of course this might raise a question, if it requires an unlawful act, is the prosecution required to prove all the elements of the crime they're relying upon to construct the charge of manslaughter? And the answer is yes, as illustrated by the case of Lamp. A failure to demonstrate a key element of assault was fatal to the attempt to convict the defendant of manslaughter. So in Lamb, two boys had been playing with a partially loaded revolver. Both of the boys believed that the loaded chambers were not opposite the barrel and therefore it wouldn't fire. However, what they didn't appreciate is when they cocked the revolver, it um, rotated the barrel. So when they had one of them fired, he hadn't appreciated that the barrel had rotated and there was now live ammunition directly opposite the hammer. Which of course led to the death of the victim. The prosecution's case was based on the crime of assault. However, that proved to be a mistake because the victim didn't believe the gun would fire and so he didn't apprehend immediate unlawful personal violence, which is a requirement for a the crime of assault. And since the prosecution failed to establish there had been an assault, there couldn't be 
a case of constructive manslaughter or udam because the unlawful act they're relying upon had failed to be proven. Additionally, if the defendant raises a defence to the unlawful act, the prosecution must rebut this defence, as confirmed in R.V. Scarlet, in which the appellant was a publican who had ejected a drunken customer who fell and died. The publican attempted to rely on self-defence, and the court confirmed that if the defence successfully negates the unlawful act, which here was a battery, another form of common assault, it must, as a necessary inference, entitle the defendant to be acquitted of a manslaughter too, because the unlawful act of prosecution relying upon was not successfully proven. So, are there any other qualifications to the requirements for an unlawful act? Yes, here are four key ones. Admitting to act cannot lead to liability for UDAM, per R.V. Law, 1973, in which the appellant's child died from neglect which is a failure to act, not a positive act in itself. And as there was no positive act, there was no unlawful act. There was an unlawful failure to act, which was insufficient for Udan. And the unlawful act doesn't actually need to be directed towards the victim, as stated in Larkin, in which the appellant had waved around a razor to frighten the lover of his mistress. But his mistress, being drunk at the time, fell against the razor and died. The unlawful act of assault, the threat, had been directed at the mistress's lover, but the court did not believe that this would preclude liability for the death of the mistress, since there had been an unlawful act, an assault, and that unlawful act had caused a death, and that's all that was required. There was no reason in law to require that the unlawful act be directed at the person who eventually dies. And this is a very, very unusual qualification, but I thought I'd add it anyway. The victim does not technically need to be a human being. That's from Attorney General's reference number three of 1994, which was actually heard in 1997. The House of Lords in that case noted that there is nothing requiring the victim to be a human being. The case had been about a defendant who'd been acquitted of murder when he'd stabbed his pregnant girlfriend which led her to give birth prematurely to a child who subsequently died as a result of a premature birth. Now, the murder charge failed because in English law, a fetus is not a human being and murder is defined as being unlawful killing of a human being. So it was simply not possible to pursue the charge of murder successfully. But the House of Lords noted that Udam doesn't specify anything about a human being and therefore the defendant could have been successfully charged and convicted of manslaughter because manslaughter didn't require that the victim be a human being at the time of the offence or indeed technically didn't need to be one at all. Very confusing. I'm inclined to say if the baby had never been born or had died pre-birth, there would have been a different result. But because the baby was born alive, it appears a manslaughter conviction would have been feasible. Additionally, you might also note that uh, the victim, the fetus who was eventually born and did not live 
to see his first birthday was not the target of the unlawful act either. So again, it doesn't need to be directed towards the victim and the victim doesn't need to be human. And indeed, the act doesn't actually need to be targeted towards a living thing whatsoever, which comes from Goodfellow. Goodfellow had set fire to his house in an attempt to force the council to rehouse him, but his wife's son and his son's girlfriend all died in the subsequent fire. The appeal to the Court of Appeal was unsuccessful on the grounds that there was nothing in the formula for Udam that required the unlawful act be directed at anybody in particular and could be directed at an inanimate object if it was appropriate in the circumstances as it was here. And now the requirement that the act be dangerous. The legal meaning of dangerous is different to its ordinary dictionary definition and comes from the case of R. V. Church from 1965, in which Lord Justice Edmund Davies said, the unlawful act must be such as all sober and reasonable people would inevitably recognise must subject the other person to at least the risk of some harm resulting therefrom, albeit not serious harm. To summarise, the jury must be convinced that a sober and reasonable person present at the scene of the crime would conclude there was a risk of somebody being hurt by the unlawful act. That doesn't require them to believe there is a risk of death or even a risk of life-threatening or severe injuries, only a risk of harm occurring. So, in order to illustrate this, the facts of church were that the appellant had knocked the victim unconscious and had tried and failed to rouse her from unconsciousness for 30 minutes, which led him to conclude that she was actually dead, leading him to dispose of her corpse, uh, in quotes, in a nearby river. But the coroner's report indicated that the cause of death was drowning, and therefore she must have still been alive when he'd thrown her into the river. The decision on appeal was that the jury could safely conclude that the unlawful act was dangerous, because a sober and reasonable person would have recognised the risk of some harm occurring. But what knowledge does a sober and reasonable person have? Well, they only have the knowledge that can be expected of a bystander who witnesses the crime. And so if the bystander could only conclude the act is dangerous because of specific special knowledge they possess that an average bystander wouldn't, the bystander is treated as unaware that the act is dangerous. And must con the jury must conclude that the act is not dangerous in the church sense. So it's pretty common for law lecturers to compare and contrast the cases of R.V. Dawson and R.V. Watson. In Dawson, a defendant attempted to rob a petrol station and a six-year-old attendant suffered a heart attack brought on by heart disease soon after the defendants fled empty-handed. In Watson, the appellant had broken into the house of an 87-year-old victim who confronted him and the appellant shouted abuse at him and ran off with a police finding the victim had died of a heart attack roughly 90 minutes after the defendant had broken in. Now, in both cases, the convictions were actually quashed, but regarding the church test, the court of appeal concluded that it was not successfully passed in Dawson and the act would not be deemed dangerous in the church sense. But in Watson, it would be dangerous under the church test. The reason being, in the case of Dawson, a reasonable bystander couldn't have been aware that the attendant had a heart disease 
that would bring on the fatal heart attack. Six-year-olds do die of heart attacks, but a six-year-old is not a walking time bomb just waiting for a heart attack. On the other hand, in Watson, the 87-year-old was very clearly old and frail, and a reasonable bystander would have known so. And so the reasonable bystander could and would have concluded that the act is dangerous in a church sense. But the, in Watson, the conviction was quashed because there was an issue of causation. The prosecution hadn't actually been able to successfully show the burglary was the cause of a fatal heart attack. And so because there is an issue of causation and they couldn't prove that the Ulnarflak had brought on the death, the manslaughter conviction had to be overturned. So what about if the defendant has made a mistake and they do something that they believe is safe but is actually very dangerous? Well, in R.V. Ball in 1989, the Court of Appeal held that the defendant's mistake is of no consequence if the bystander wouldn't make that mistake. In that case, the appellant had grabbed his shotgun to frighten off the victim who had come to confront him. Now, the defendant believed he had loaded his shotgun with blank cartridges and fired upon her to try and scare her away, only to discover that he had accidentally loaded the shotgun with live ammunition, which, of course, caused the victim to be shot and killed. Now, a bystander would have considered a shotgun would have been loaded with live ammunition, which, of course, it was in fact. And therefore, that bystander would conclude this was a dangerous act, and this would be the correct application of the test in church. Hence, his mistake was irrelevant. The bystander wouldn't have appreciated the mistake. They wouldn't have been aware of the mistake and would have deemed it dangerous in the church sense. And now we move on to the issue of causation, that the unlawful act must cause death. In the simplest circumstances, it will be a simple matter of the principles of factual and legal causation. In, as a matter of fact, is there a direct link between the unlawful act and the death? If yes, then it is a factual cause. And is there more than a slight and trifling link such that the law should actually take an interest in the case? If yes, then there is legal causation. This is the so-called de minimis rule that the law doesn't uh, concern itself with the most minimal circumstances. So there must be something more than just minimal to tie the two together or else, legally, it isn't treated as a cause at all, even if it is a factual cause. The clearest application of these principles would be R. V. Cato from 1976, in which the conviction was based on administering a noxious thing contrary to Section 23 of the Offences Against a Persons Act, 1861, when he'd injected the victim with heroin. However, courts have had a severe issue of causation, or at the very least did for a few years, because Lord Widgery, in his judgment, concluded that unlawful possession of a controlled substance could have been relied upon as the unlawful act, as well as the administration of a noxious thing. But of course this was an obiter comment, 
nonetheless, it was very difficult to see how merely possessing a controlled substance can itself cause death. And yet Lord Widgery appeared to believe otherwise in his obiter comment in stating it could have been relied upon. And he said we, which indicated that this had been common ground among himself and the rest of the law lords. All of, well, Lord Justices of Appeal. This was a Court of Appeal case, I think. So then we move on to Dolby. In Dolby, the supply of drugs was not treated as a cause of the victim's death, and the court did not follow Lord Widgery's obiter reasoning, believing that the cause of death had been the ad administration or injection of a fatal dosage, not the actual supply. There was actually a slight complication to the Dolby case. Because the victim had, after injecting himself with the solution that the uh, defendant had supplied to him, had later in the night twice injected himself with a substance that had not actually been identified during the trial. So that might have contributed to his death. It was very difficult to ascertain yes or no. So we move on to the Kennedy cases. A single case provided over a decade of litigation legal confusion, which was the death of Marco Bosque after being supplied with heroin by Simon Kennedy in a hostel in 1996. So the very first case was R. V. Kennedy from 1999, in which it was held that Bosque's self-injection was an unlawful act in which Kennedy had assisted, but had caused the death of Mr. Bosque and so amounted to Udam. They distinguished Dolby on the facts, the facts being that in Dolby the victim had prepared a solution he injected into himself, whereas in Kennedy, Kennedy had prepared a solution and Bosque self-injected. However, in 2002, the Court of Appeal pointed out that it is not a crime to inject yourself with any substance, and so the Kennedy case had essentially erred in the law by failing to even address the fact that they had based the UDAM on an unlawful act that was not actually unlawful, which led to another appeal to the Court of Appeal, R.V. Kennedy 2005, but the conviction was upheld on the grounds he had assisted the administration of a drug contrary to Section 23 of the OEPA, and so there had been an unlawful act, the same one as happened in Cato, However, this was then appealed to the House of Lords, who in 2007, in another R.V. Kennedy case, held that as injection was performed by a fully informed and responsible adult who had injected himself, there could be no conviction for manslaughter simply for supplying the drugs to the victim. They also noted that the Court of Appeal in 2005 had erroneously, replied, had erroneously relied upon the case of R.V. Rogers, which was from 2003 in which the drug had been jointly administered by the defendant and the victim. But in Kennedy, the defendant had only been a supplier. The victim had self-administered the drugs himself. And therefore, the defendant's conviction, finally, over 11 years after the circumstances that led to the charges, finally, his convictions were overturned. And are there any minimum mens rea requirements? What does the need intent 
recklessness, negligence? Is there any absolute minimum that must be required? Originally, yes, there was, based on an obiter statement by Lord Denning and Graham Barr, which was that the defendant had to do a dangerous act with intent to frighten or harm someone, or realising is likely to frighten or harm someone. So they must, at the very least, have an intention to scare. That's the absolute minimum. But that was a civil case about public policy and an insurance policy in a case of manslaughter. Well, he wasn't actually convicted of manslaughter, but the question was whether an insurance policy covering a person who was accused of manslaughter was voided by his criminality in doing the act that led to the charges, even if he wasn't found guilty. It's very technical and... I didn't need to expand that far here, but if you want to know more, you'd need to look up the case. But this orbiter only lasted six years because in DPP and Newbury, the House of Lords took a different view. They believed it was irrelevant whether the defendant appreciated a risk of harm when performing the unlawful act. All that really mattered was that it was a dangerous act in a church sense. It was irrelevant whether the defendant realised that it was dangerous. And as an additional statement, for strict liability, if the unlawful act being relied upon is a strict liability offence, then of course, since strict liability offences require no mens rea, then you can secure, or the prosecution more correctly can secure, a conviction without needing to prove any mens rea whatsoever, because the unlawful act being relied upon doesn't require it and there is no requirement for mens rea in Udam except that it be dangerous which is technically part of the actus reus not the mens rea. I hope this has been helpful please like share and subscribe I've been friend in law and I'll see you next week.